Uh, well, if we haven't met, I'm uh, Jeremy's closer. And uh, <laughs> my name is Adam. And uh, I just love being a uh, senior pastor here. And uh, I'm excited about this journey we're going to take uh, towards Easter during the season of Lent. Uh, before I was ordained for a long time, uh, like Dustin, was in youth ministry. Many treasured memories there, and, and one of those was while we were traveling, and we were in an airport, and several of the kids had stopped at Cinnabon to get breakfast. This was probably nine in the morning, and the Cinnabon people were like, we don't have any Cinnabons. <laughs> we were kind of like, well, baby, what is you doing? Like, what, what else, what's you got going on? And I'm not trying to be mean to, God bless the folks that work in an airport Cinnabon, I'm just saying like, <laughs> what else is going on? Uh, you know, that's the name of the place. It's, it's kind of what you do. And I guess what I would draw a comparison to is if Cinnabon isn't doing Cinnabons, I'm not sure what they're doing. If, if, if the church isn't building disciples, I'm not sure what we're doing. Took a turn there, didn't we? Right, this is, we are in the disciple-making business. Cinnabon is in the cinnamon business. It's essential to what we do. Discipleship is central to the church's purpose. And so we're going to talk about what that means, what, what this term even means over the course of the next several weeks. I'll give you a, a definition I'm sure I ripped off from someone uh, in seminary. A disciple is committed to a process of transformation into the image of Christ for the sake of others. So to be a disciple of Jesus is a process where you're being transformed into what? Into the image of Jesus. For what? For the sake of others. That's a good, a good foundational definition, in my view, of what a disciple is. It's a commi- person committed to a process of transformation into the image of Christ for the sake of others. And in this series, From Two, we're going to be looking at five different journeys that disciples make. Today we're looking at the journey, the journey of going from enemy to friend. From an enemy of God to a friend of God. And from enemies with our neighbors to friends of our neighbors. And all this is going to be leading up to Easter throughout the season of Lent. That's a word that means spring season. And it's a tradition in the church for the six weeks that precede Easter to have a time of reflection, of, of repentance. Uh, and it's essentially so we're not just skipping to the good part at the end. right? It's to help make uh, the reality of the resurrection something we've worked toward or worked through and not just kind of uh, gone right to the good part, in my view. So our prayer as a church is that this Lent, you would take a step in your own discipleship to Jesus as we study what it's like to go from this to that, we'll be defining five discipleship journeys that disciples go on. And what I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word today is that a disciple responds to Jesus by reconciling with others. The season of Lent began with Ash Wednesday, and Pastor Dale led a great service just a few days ago. And again, this time of reflection and repentance That's how Ash Wednesday starts off Lent. And on Wednesday, we were reminded that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And so in the book of Romans, we see that 
all of our salvation is at God's initiative, that God makes the first step towards us, that while we were still enemies, God gives us the gift of Jesus Christ. And Jesus later confirms our moving from enemies of God to friends of God when he tells his disciples in John 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Now, there's, there's no fancy Greek definition for what Jesus meant by friend. No hidden alternative meaning. It's exactly what you would think. What a mind-blowing concept. That the God of the universe, made incarnate in Christ, would call us friends. Did you ever have a moment in your social history, particularly middle school or high school, where like maybe the cool kids table, he invited you to sit over there and you were like, me? What's that scene in Toy Story with the aliens? I have been chosen. Do you remember that? Almost like shocked that they would bring you into the fold. That's, that's how we can feel about Jesus calling us friends. That we would be worthy of such a concept. Now Jesus did qualify his statement in the previous verse. In John 15 we read he calls us friends. In, John, in verse 14 we read him saying, you are my friends if you do what I command. And what is it that Jesus commands? He said so in verse 17 following this. Love each other. This is my command. Love each other. Doing what Jesus commands, loving one another, is the response of our friendship with Jesus. It's, it's changing our behavior is not a requirement for us to be called his friends. I don't want to make this confusing. I just want to make sure the order that we set these in is very important. It makes all the difference. That God initiates love and acceptance with each of us through the gift of Jesus Christ while we were still God's enemies, while we would rather do our own thing. And then when we repent of our sins, accept Jesus as Messiah, which means Savior, we receive friendship with Jesus as a response to God's love not as a requirement to receive it. Again, very important distinction. We don't change our behavior, then we're accepted by God. We are first accepted by God while we're enemies, and then our behavior, our change, is a response to that love. This is, this is Wesleyanism 101. And this happens through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Some of us may have had um, an occasion at a camp or listening to Jeremy and Alice or uh, we, may, we, we might be able to point back to a single time where we felt like we said yes and gave our lives to God. And that can happen in an instant, but it still grows in degrees. It still matures over time. And that's the mark of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, think back to your time as a student. Some of us may have to only think back like two days, and we're all very jealous of that. Uh, what, what was your motivation as a student for getting good grades? Maybe to gain some type of incentive. Maybe you got an allowance that was kind of based on your grades, or you got paid for grades. That was not a policy my parents enacted, by the way. Uh, maybe you can talk to yours about that after the service. That'd be good. Uh, or maybe it was to avoid punishment. So if you got good grades, that was the expectation. And if you didn't, 
Maybe you lost that, that wonderful word, privileges, right? Social privileges or automobile privileges. Nowadays, nowadays, phone privileges. I didn't have a phone to lose in eighth grade, but I would have. Because in eighth grade, I came home with a set of really bad grades, and they sh- they, the grades I got shared a letter with my first name. I'll tell you that. An M ain't a grade. Friends, by the end of the night, my room like this looked like a Siberian prison cell. I mean, it was, it, was, it was astounding how swiftly my parents moved. And uh, one of the memories I try to repress is I think I was in so much trouble, they even changed my sheets. Like, I couldn't even have fun sheets. You just get gray. <laughs> you know? Oh, I was in such big trouble. I think for a lot of us, we start off coming to God trying to avoid punishment. And maybe that's how we were raised. Now, there are worse places to start. Methodist founder John Wesley was very, very fond of quoting Proverbs 9.10, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But there is a more excellent way to come to God. Now, what I'd like you to do is think back, not just why you got good grades, to avoid punishment or gain incentives, but rather, can you think of a teacher who made a a, a special impression on you, who made an influence on you? Um, Maybe, I hope you have at least one. If you don't, maybe you think, or if it's just, you know, it's all kind of a blur. Um, Can you think of a manager that you loved working with or uh, a friend or family member that that just really influenced you? Someone you were really fond of, especially a teacher. See, in eighth grade, I learned to work hard in school to avoid punishment. Now, as a parent myself, I understand my parents wouldn't tolerate me not giving effort. But in Mr. Springer's creative writing class, I wanted to do excellent work because that was the type of response Mr. Springer inspired with his teaching. See the difference? I think of Mr. Springer every week when I write these sermons. He would say, show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. Our moving from enemies of friends to God hinges on our response to God's love. Not as a requirement to receive it, but that our behavior would change, our lives would change, our desires would change based on us wanting to please God in response to the love God has already supplied. I believe that's why it's called good news. Because our relationship with God isn't just to avoid punishment. It's to do the good things that we desire because God first loved us. And good news it is. But when Jesus tells us we are his friends, if we do what he commands, we would do well to be mindful of all that encompasses. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So to love one another is simple to comprehend. It's hard consistently to do. And here, according to Jesus, there's a correlation between our relationship and our worship of God and our relationship with others. If we're at odds with a brother or sister, according to Jesus, that takes precedence 
over worship of God. I mean, if we were to take this seriously, do we need to have like a little moment before we take offering? We can go out in the lobby and call the person that we need to reconcile with? I mean, that, that seems crazy that we would practice that, but that's exactly what Jesus prescribes. And, and the, the audience here is not just a biological brother or sister. In Greek, the word for brother or sister is adelphos, and the sense is a neighbor, especially understood as an associate with which one will interact morally and socially, especially a fellow believer, what we would call members of our same church. According to Jesus, before we can be unburdened worshipers before God, we must first go and be reconciled to our estranged neighbor. The word for reconcile in Matthew 5.24 is used only once in the New Testament. And it means to be or become restored to favorable or friendly relations with another after a presumed wrong. So friends, our journey, once we've moved from enemies of God to friends of God, we now move from enemies of people to friends of people, enemies of our neighbors to friends with our neighbors. A disciple responds to Jesus by reconciling with others. Now we've talked a lot at our church and we will continue to talk a lot about forgiveness and what it means for us to forgive other people. I think that's a foundational concept in the Christian life. But I wanna take kind of an alternative view of this conversation today and this week approach it from the perspective of how do we seek reconciliation with others when we are wrong? That's a less fun sermon to listen to, isn't it? That's right. And I think that the journey of, of reconciliation, the journey of moving from enemies to friends, begins with our desire. You ever heard the phrase, sorry, not sorry? Have you seen any memes like this? I think, it's, I think it's pretty hard to reconcile with someone when one party doesn't think they did anything wrong. So if we're at the sorry, not sorry phase, God bless you. I'm not sure what to do for you. Okay. But beyond that, we, we can probably find ourselves somewhere along this spectrum. And I was super excited to make them all start with R. So when it comes to reconciling with other people, where do we typically find ourselves? And it may be different in different scenarios. So this continuum of reconciliation. We might find ourselves in the place where we have regret, but if we're honest, it's really we regret that we got caught. Or... It's close cousin. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Anybody ever got that? How'd that go? Not well, that's right. It's okay to participate here at 1045. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry you felt that way. What Travis Kelsey do at the parade? <laughs> that ain't it. I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> no, that ain't it. You might as well not start. Now, if we can progress to the point, or maybe we just start at the point where we really do have remorse. That means we wish we had done differently. I have remorse for what I have done. But an even stronger step towards reconciliation is repentance. And that's a very biblical word. That word means to take an about face, to, to change paths. If we, if we want to repent, we have a resolve to change. And we can resolve to change and the other person can, can receive that, and that's good progress, but that's typically just the start. 
True reconciliation will take both parties, and it's going to take time for that desire of repentance to bear out over time. Time for us to rebuild trust. Time for the other person to accept our desire to repent as sincere, to see it in concrete action. And so the final space in the continuum of reconciliation is where we make it right over time, where we really do reconcile. Now, if you want to open up a conversation around reconciliation, there's a helpful model I've, I've been taught. It's called SBI. It stands for Situation, Behavior, and Impact. It sounds like a condition you wouldn't be glad to have. I'm so sorry, you have SBI. There's, there's nothing we can do. But it is really helpful. Now, again, if Jesus says, go and be reconciled to your brother and sister, all I'm trying to provide are some footholds to get a conversation started. I'm not the master of this, but I have found this to be helpful. Specific, excuse me, situation, behavior, impact. And, and a lot of times, we don't like confrontations, and, and we're, not, we're just not good at this stuff. So what happens is, when we finally do get enough nerve to go and either confront someone or we're confronted, a lot of times somebody's defensive or even on the offensive, they'll say, well, you always, right? Well, almost no one I know always does anything. And so the, the, we speak in these broad generalizations and they're usually about their character. You are always so lazy. And again, how's that, how's that gonna turn out? And so situation behavior impact looks a lot like this. Rather than universalizing this legitimate gripe we have, we need to bring it back down to something very specific. So it could look like something like this. I'd like to talk to you about the other day when, and then you describe the situation. This is you asking for forgiveness, by the way. I realized that when I did describe the behavior that it was wrong, and I'm sorry. And I know this hurt you because, and then you can describe the impact. So I want to talk to you about the other day when I fill in the blank. When I did this, it was wrong. And then you fill in the, the specific behavior. And then I realized this hurt you, and this is the impact I've seen it have on you. And I want you to know I'm sorry, and I want to make it right. Now again, this isn't a magic wand, but it helps us get down to the real issues at hand and it gives us a template to help express probably some pretty complicated feelings. And so you say, it's my hope to make this right over time, and then you invite the other party to respond. So that's just one way of looking at this. Specific situation, behavior, impact. Now, there's also times where the person we need to reconcile with is unable to. Perhaps they're sick, or somehow incapacitated, perhaps they're deceased. And I'm just going to reveal my weirdness that I'm always on the hunt for sermon stuff, even at CBS. You seen this thing, the medication disposal? Here, here, here's why I love this example. When I bring medicine to the medication disposal thing at CVS, I don't know where they end up. I don't know what they do with them. All I know is I got rid of them. So what I'm proposing to you is that maybe you need to take advantage of God's reconciling disposal box. 
I need to get rid of this thing. God, I'm going to give it to you. I don't know where it goes. I don't know what anybody does with it, but I need to get rid of it. And think about medicine that at one point was helpful, or maybe it's expired, or maybe we no longer need whatever it was. And so if we continue to take it, it'll be poison. We have to rid ourselves of that poison. And I think the same is true when we're harboring bitterness or anger over unresolved reconciliation. And so if you need to write out what you wish that person would say to you, go ahead and do it. Write it down. It's not corny, and nobody's got to know. But if our focus has been on how do we reconcile with others, write down what you wish you could tell them. Go ahead and do it. We have people that would love to help receive that. You can make an appointment with one of our care ministers or our pastors. And I'm confident that God would receive your effort gladly so that if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We read that in Romans 12, 18. I love this verse. That it may not be possible for you to reconcile this, with this other person in the way that you'd like. So what can you do as far as it is up to you? How can you do your best to live at peace when the situation may not allow you to, to pursue it as much as you wish you could? I believe God would honor that. And I don't think you're weird for pursuing it. God's reconciliation disposal box. Try it. Now, everything we've been over so far, I would consider interpersonal reconciliation. A disciple responds to Jesus by reconciling with others, as Jesus told us to. But that isn't necessarily limited to a one-on-one interpersonal level. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul writes, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So now we see that the scale here is more than any one person's individual network of relationships. As Christians, we're to carry out this message of reconciliation into the world. That's why our acolytes, who do an awesome job, you know, it's not just because we want to give Phoenix something to do, but at the end of every service, you may know this, you may not. When they extinguish the light here and carry it out, this is what this is representing, carrying the light of Christ out into the world. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. My favorite biblical scholar, William Barclay, said, he called this the Christian's proud privilege and almost terrifying responsibility. Every once in a while, I'll still have my name tag on, or, um, you know, we got these cool jackets for the staff, and I'll, I'll wear those around. And then I'm like, oh, I need to be nice. <laughs> now, I think that anyway, most of the time. But see what I'm saying? Like, oh, man, I got my name tag on. Dang it. I can't buy X, Y, or Z at the store anymore. Uh, and I think that's sort of, I'm, I'm like 60% kidding when I tell you this. But when we consider ourselves Christians, yeah, that is our job to go out in the world and be Christ's ambassadors. That we would represent Christ out in the world and that as a result of our friendship, Others would be reconciled as well. 
A disciple responds to Jesus by reconciling with others. And our response to Jesus as disciples, our response of love to Jesus should overflow into our community. In December of 2019, our church hosted a joint event between the Kearney School District and the U.S. Department of Justice. It was called School Spirit that stood for Student Identification and Resolution of Issues Together. And it was incredible to watch students come together, diagnose real problems in their schools, particularly around racism and about bullying. In order to bring a similar effort beyond just schools, earlier this month, the City of Kearney Board of Aldermen created a City Spirit Committee. Now, I put the, the doc up there. I mean, there's literal fine print. What, what, what's important for us to know is that this committee's work is centered on how the city may better encourage and nurture a safe, welcoming, and supportive community atmosphere within the city limits of Kearney. Now, it's, it's my honor to be one of those eight people placed on this committee. And what I discovered was, oh, we got three more folks on there who are connected to our church in one way or another. And that wasn't orchestrated by any way, but I thought it was telling. And I was proud that over the out, out of the overflow of our church would be this type of desire for our community. Now, our first meeting to get this thing launched was last Wednesday at Ash Wednesday. And so you better believe, before I headed out, I did the most passive-aggressive, darkest ash on my forehead <laughs> to be like, I should be in my church. But that's the gift of a great staff. Nobody missed a beat. Nobody missed me. And we were able to extend our ministry out into the community at the same time. I still did ashes from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., though. And I'm letting everybody know. <laughs> the high hopes for an effort like this again it goes beyond our students but they are under a multitude of pressures that a lot of us just don't have to face what's, uh, what's the program called the software where you can monitor your kids grades like in real time power school I would, I would love to see an actual show of hands of how many of you like me have actually given thanks to God that power school was not out when you were in middle school and high school. Come on. Okay, I see you. I see you. Yes, yes, sir, in the back. Oh, my gosh, I don't know what I would have done. I do not think our students have gotten crueler. I do think that technology and things like phones and social media have supercharged the frequency and, and the rate that hurt can spread. I don't think our students are any crueler than when any of us were in school. I do think we're just more efficient. Students are subjected to cruelty and bullying for a variety of reasons. And I am sure, friends, that your hearts break as mine do, especially when our community makes headlines for how students that are not white are treated. It's like an annual event. I don't think I'll ever know what those students are subjected to. What I do know is that Jesus compels us as Christians to work toward a community where everyone is valued and welcomed as a child of God. My desire in bringing all this up is not to be like, hey, look at this committee I'm on, 
or to, to literally stand above you here and talk down to you. My desire is for everyone in Kearney to have access to the same amazing experience that my family has had since the day we moved in almost four years ago. So students, we, we need you to be leaders. We need you to stick out your neck for the cause of Christ and for the ministry of reconciliation. It's going to cost you socially. It's going to cost you. But here's the deal. If you stick up for a student who's on the receiving end of this evil, my guess is that student will never forget it. The reality is that for most of your peers that you go to school with, you will never see or hear from after you graduate. So you do the math. What's more worth it? And for all of us grown folks, the need for reconciliation isn't just limited to middle school and high school students. Our kids look to us. In fact, I, th I would argue we may be the problem because the kids got to learn this junk from somewhere. We must model the message of reconciliation for our children. It's up to us to carry the hopeful message of Jesus out from this place into Kearney and Clay County and beyond, wherever we go. I don't believe, and I don't bring this stuff up because I think we have a church full of racists. I, but I do believe that we are collectively responsible for the culture of our community. And so sometimes the process of reconciliation has to start with enough. We, this cannot stand. And we can be community agents as a result of our reconciliation with God that we could carry that movement from enemies to friends out from beyond these walls and into the community. Imagine what God could bring about with each of us operating in our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, our offices throughout Clay County and beyond when we respond to Jesus by reconciling with others. Friends, this is part of what it means to be on a journey of discipleship, to be moving from an enemy of God to Jesus calling us friends. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this community of faith. It's my prayer that we have been both challenged and encouraged by the reading of your word, God. That Jesus welcomes us into his glorious friendship. That we would be seen as worthy to be called friends. And at the same time, that is a high calling. That our relationships with others would be a reflection of our relationship with you. God, might you give us the courage and the wisdom to perceive opportunities to speak up and the wisdom and the words to say when the time comes. God, help change our desires so that we would want reconciliation from all those estranged relationships in our lives.
that having been forgiven much by you, we would have the capacity to forgive others and to seek that forgiveness, God. God, help us to live out all of these things, not in an effort to avoid punishment, but in response to your great love, which first reaches out to us. We give thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.